Hi, Dave Bremer here. This is Fourth Record Program number 1281. Interview number 18 with Jim Diagenio and our special guest, David Talbot, about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on December 28th of the year 2022. And once again, it is not only my privilege to have back once again Jim Diagenio, but our special privilege to be joined by David Talbot, who, in addition to being a major contributor to JFK Revisited, is also, among other things, the founder of Salon.com and the author of, among other titles, Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard, the latter particularly familiar to our audience. Gentlemen, welcome to our airways. Thanks, Dave. Be here. Uh, David, in... The last chapter of the four-hour version of the documentary, you characterize the challenge facing JFK and the realization of both his foreign and national security policies as having to do an end run around the Pentagon, the State Department, and the CIA. Uh, Then in the supplemental interviews uh, to the documentaries, this in the book, JFK Revisited, you mentioned that uh, actually in response to a an interrogatory by Jim, Jim Diagenio, uh, about whether Alan Dulles was really fired. And I wonder if you could tell us or recap for us what Alan Dulles did after his, quote, firing, unquote, and how that relates not only to the challenge uh, facing JFK, but the developments that we will be uh, covering in these talks. Well, it's great to be here, and thank you uh, both for being uh, so uh, involved in this ongoing, I think, murder case. Um, yes, Jim did get, I think, at the heart of what uh, – the documentary uh, and this case is all about when he talked about uh, he asked me about uh, President Kennedy being uh, on the outs and in conflict and at war in fact he was at war with his own government in many ways uh, he was at war with the State Department with the CIA and the Pentagon uh, the Kennedy administration had shrunk to a very small circle within uh by the end of his presidency uh of people he trusted he trusted robert mcnamara to a large extent at the defense department but mcnamara himself is not really in charge of that department the pen uh the generals the admirals were in open rules against him in many ways uh as kennedy's surrogate he trusted his brother, of course, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general, and he trusted the people in the White House uh, to a large extent. Um, he should not have trusted McGeorge Bundy, who I believe was a snake in the garden. McGeorge Bundy was his national security advisor, was much closer and more aligned with the viewpoints of Alan Dulles, uh, who he owed a great deal to because he'd saved, Dulles had saved his brother, William Bundy, who served in the State Department when uh, Senator McCarthy came after the CIA in the 1950s uh, during the Eisenhower administration. So the Bundy family and the Dulles family was closely aligned politically, and I felt that uh, President Kennedy really invested too much faith in uh, his national security advisor. So to a great extent, the presidency was a very small and, and, and shrinking one, the Kennedy presidency. And when he fired Alan Dulles after the Bay of Pigs, he, uh, you know, graciously gave him a medal, uh, and he ushered him out the door in the fall of 1961. Alan Dulles went home and licked his wounds for a time. And then, as you suggested, set up a shadow government, uh, at his home in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown. And, uh, many of the CIA top deputies, uh, Richard Helms, uh, Jim Angleton, Howard Hunt, continued to, I think, follow the direction of Alan Dulles uh, from that point on. Not uh, the fellow who was put in charge of the CIA officially, 
who was a businessman or a publican who really didn't know the CIA kind of culture, didn't know the CIA world. It was Helen Dulles who continued to run, I think, effectively the CIA. And one other thing I want to point out, there's 60 years later, there's this strange phantom limb of the CIA that still protects the reputation of Alan Dulles. Lisa Pease, who's another, I think, great researcher in this area, and myself, uh, both came across this document showing that Alan Dulles, on the weekend of the assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas, uh, that fateful day, November 22nd, 1963, Alan Dulles, who's been fired from the CIA two years earlier, is on his way goes to the uh, CIA remote facility in Northern Virginia that day, according to his date book that we found at the Princeton Library, Sealand Mud Library, where all uh, Alan Dulles' um, papers are are kept. Uh, that document showing that Alan Dulles, for some reason, went to Camp Peary. It was known as the farm, a CIA remote facility. Two years after he was fired by President Kennedy, what the hell was he doing there? That uh, document conveniently was disappeared. The 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 library claimed they have no record of it. Uh, very mysterious. So they continue to cover up. Somebody continues to cover up for Alan Dulles to this very day. I I think um I think um and David does a nice job. And by the way, uh, David didn't just write one book. He wrote two good books. Uh, Brothers is a very good book. The Devil's Chessboard, I believe, is the best biography of Alan Dulles ever. Okay, you know. Uh, but the reason that Kennedy, see, when when he saw that the Bay of Pigs was going to be a disaster, okay, you know, uh, he li- he literally cried into his wife's arms. Okay, and said, how could I have been so stupid to let them go, you know? And he went through a, a moderate period of depression after that, okay? And then he recovered himself, and he put Bobby Kennedy on the Taylor Commission, which was the White House investigation of the Bay of Pigs. And um, a guy named Lyman Kirkpatrick, who did the CIA in-house investigation, gave... Bobby, his report. And if you read <laughs> Bobby Kennedy went after Alan Dulles on this thing, I mean, it's, it's really something to see, uh, to hear. You know, he, he says, he says, okay, wh- what did you expect them to do if they got bogged down on this speech? And he, and Alan Dulles says, go gorilla. And he says, how could they go gorilla when the mountains are 85 miles away? And then he calls in one of the guys there and he puts him on the stand and he says, did you ever have any training to go gorilla the many months that we were training you for this operation? He said, never. We never had it. So, so Dulles was basically just blowing smoke. Dulles was a very cynical man. I think Jim is right. According to the CIA's own internal uh, analysis of the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a complete disaster, and it was done by this man, as Jim pointed out, Lyman Kirkpatrick. I think he was an honest uh, a CIA official. And he went after Dulles. He went after the plan. He found out that Dulles had staffed uh, the Bay of Pigs operation with the losers from the agency, the C team. And he expected them to fail on the beaches of uh, the Bay of Pigs. And he expected Kennedy then to be sandbagged into sending in the Marines and sending in the Air Force and having an all-out invasion of Cuba, which Kennedy had warned Dulles and the plan and Richard Bissell and the planners of the Bay of Pigs operation that he was not going to do. He would not escalate the war uh, into an international incident. It was already a big enough incident. He wanted it done as quietly as possible. He felt he'd been sandbagged afterwards. He's furious. He said he would famously was prepared to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. But he uh publicly uh fell on his sword. He did the right thing. He took responsibility as president for the failure of the Pay of Pigs operation. But behind closed doors, he was furious and he ushered Alan Dulles out the door. 
Alan Dulles never forgave him for that, even though President Kennedy gave him a medal and l- let him leave with his honor intact. He never forgave him for being fired. Uh, David, uh, in terms of Alan Dulles being very cynical, uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, plot itself or plan itself was consummately cynical. And uh, after uh, the Kennedy administration ended, obviously, with JFK's life, he disclosed that the plan was certain to fail and that the idea really was to force JFK's hand. I wonder if you would develop that for us. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier, of course, that I think the plan all along was a very cynical one. It was the, to use these 1,100-some men uh, as sacrificial lambs. Uh, their invasion was intended to fail, was bogged down, which it quickly did. And then uh, Kennedy was going to be forced by his admirals and generals to join chiefs who met with him that night and said, President, we had to send in the full might of the uh, U.S. military to rescue these men and to invade the island. That was the intention all along was to sandbag Kennedy into escalating uh, into a full-out invasion of Cuba. Kennedy refused to uh, budge. And and that point on, his uh, faith in uh, the generals, his faith in the CIA has been shattered. And uh, they, of course, uh, are increasingly alienated from the president himself. Now, it's also important, I think my book... The Devil's Chessboard was the first uh, book to bring this out. That the same month that this was going on in Cuba, the CIA is trying to topple President Charles de Gaulle in France, who's an ally of ours. It was an outrageous operation. The French press is full of a talk about the CIA and Alan Dulles himself being behind this uh, revolt by right-wing generals in Algeria to overthrow President de Gaulle. And in the middle of this crisis, uh, de Gaulle, de Gaulle's ambassador to Washington, uh, contacts President Kennedy, says, what the hell is going on? Are you really uh, supporting this coup attempt in France? And President Kennedy had to admit that he was not in full control of his own government. He was not in control of the CIA. And so these two events are really, I think, the traumatic events that shaped the, the history of the rest of the Kennedy presidency, what was going on in France and in Cuba at the same time. Well, l- l- let's let's not forget the assassination of Lumumba, <laughs> which, which Kennedy didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> There's that great picture. There's this great picture on the cover of, of Mahoney's book, JFK Ordeal in Africa. Where and by the way, and David has a wonderful chapter on this in his book, okay? Uh, because Kennedy was in favor of Lumumba, okay? And and on top of that, Lumumba was a democratically elected president of a constitutional government, all right? And Kennedy, you know, doesn't know anything about the CIA operation going on, which had been administered by Dulles and Eisenhower. And then he's playing with his kids in the Oval Office, and he gets this phone call. Was it who was was it from Adlai Stevenson, David? I think yeah, yeah. it was, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. Right, because what happened was Hammerskold found who was the ambassador to the UN at the time. Right, Hammerskold found out about it, and he told uh, Stevenson, and he says, "Do you want to tell Kennedy, or do you want me to tell Kennedy?" And Stevenson said, "I'll tell him." Okay, so he calls him up, and Jock Lowe is taking the photographs. And there's this incredible picture, you know, of Kennedy with his hand up to his brow. His face collapses when he gets the news that, that Lumumba is dead, mm-hmm. you know. So killed I, I think by, killed those, by agents of the CIA and the CIA didn't even tell, as Jim was saying, didn't even tell the president about the, that he was tortured and, and uh, assassinated. And uh President Kennedy didn't learn about it, I think, for two weeks afterwards. Three he, weeks. For three weeks. Yeah. They were afraid, the CIA was afraid that President Kennedy would intervene on his behalf when he's being held as captive. 
President Kennedy, as Jim well knows, I heard a great speech by Jim on the subject a few years ago at a conference, and was very uh, much in support of the third world sort of upheaval that was going on at the time, the kind of third force that was uh, waking up to the uh, much of the Latin America, Africa, the Middle East. He knew that this wind of change could not be stopped, uh, national liberation throughout the world. And he wanted to be on the right side of history. And so he, again, was very, uh, very, uh, supportive of Patrice Lumumba in Lumumba in, in Congo, knew that this, uh, terrible be- period of colonial, colonialism had to end. Uh, and he was, as Jim said, absolutely devastated by the news that Patrice Mumba, who is really the hope in, in many ways of, of national liberation throughout the world, um, had been cruelly, uh, tortured and, and murdered, uh, by his enemies, his political enemies with the support of the CIA. So, uh, they kept this from President Kennedy. It was a fuck you to the president right away. The CIA said, we're in charge. We're running things. We'll let you know if, if it goes our way. We maybe will let you know. Maybe we won't. We won't. It was the arrogance of the, our intelligence community to keep this news from the president right away was very clear. Uh, the... What we're talking about here, obviously, is in JFK's first year. You have Alan Bullis attempting to basically date JFK into all-out invasion of Cuba with the uh, intended-to-fail Bay of Pigs plan. You have uh, the plots against de Gaulle. And in in addition to JFK informing the French uh, ambassador, that he wasn't sure he could can, he could control his own intelligence services. I wonder if you could also add in a minute, uh, Alan Bellis had his fingers apparently in that pie as well. And then in the Congo, where Kennedy was noted to be sympathetic to Patrice Lumumba, the imperative, as you point out uh, in, among other places, uh, Devil's Chessboard, the, it was important to get rid of Lumumba before JFK actually assumed office, so he was killed before the inauguration. Uh, basically, it sounds like, well, that sounds like, but uh, I, I believe these could be seen as manifestations of the failure of JFK to successfully perform that end run, and Alan Bellis basically continuing to uh, coach the team to extend the metaphor even after he was officially fired. Now, David, those three things happened before he was fired. What, what, What Talbot does in his book so eloquently is more or less coalesce those things together and ask the question, did Kennedy have any choice <laughs> after these three things? JFK really didn't have a choice except to fire him, you know? Exactly. And he was completely unaware, as I said earlier, that Alan Dulles continued to function as if he did, were still running the intelligence uh, agency uh, despite being fired. I mean, this to me is so undemocratic. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger told me this. Before he, his death, he was an advisor to the president, a noted historian, and he told me during my interview with him for Brothers that we were in, con- in control of our own government. We were not in control of the Pentagon or the CIA. Well, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up when he said that. This is the uh, essentially, uh, in name only, a democracy. Uh, and under a democracy, the president, who's duly elected, is supposed to control his own government. And President Kennedy struggled to control his own government throughout his presidency, throughout his 1,000 days. He made it clear that he was trying to end the Cold War. 
I think that's what got him killed. He was trying to end the Cold War, and he was opening back channels. He thought they were secret to Fidel Castro in Havana, to Nikita Khrushchev in Moscow, uh, and Bill Atwood, who uh, was uh, a friend of the president's, was a close diplomat, uh, you know, closely aligned with him, was uh, involved in the negotiations with Fidel Castro in Cuba, uh, to bring peace finally to those, uh, that very fraught relationship. And, uh, he later said that the CIA was tapping his phones and, uh, that their knowledge that President Kennedy had opened back channel to Castro and Havana, uh, cost him his life. I think that's one, one of the things that he was doing. President Kennedy also clearly, and McNamara himself, who was Secretary of Defense and President Kennedy, told me this. Uh, I interviewed Robert McNamara, and he told me that President Kennedy intended to withdraw all troops from Vietnam after he was safely reelected in 1964, President of the United States. He intended to end the military operations, the U.S. military operations in Vietnam. So on every front, Kennedy is withdrawing troops. Uh, he's trying to end the Cold War. He's trying to end the flashpoints that existed in the Cold War at the time. He was deathly afraid. His brother, Teddy Kennedy, told me this before his death in my interview with him, said that uh, JFK and Sorensen told me this as well, who is a speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, uh, that he was deathly afraid of a nuclear war breaking out like World War I had broken out through a series of stumbling mistakes made by the world's leaders. And, of course, the consequences of nuclear war would have been even more devastating than World War I. He was a student of history, Kennedy. He knew that world leaders made mistakes, and sometimes disastrous ones. And he was so afraid, I think he was traumatized by the events of October uh, 1962, the missile crisis, nuclear war almost breaking out over Cuba, uh, during that very fraught 13 days. So I think President Kennedy was determined to end the Cold War, determined to de-escalate the nuclear tensions that had the whole world on the edge of its seat. You know, my father came home during the middle of that nuclear crisis in October 62 and said, we may not live through the night. We may, uh, be killed in, in the middle of the night. Because a nuclear war would break out. And that was the kind of anxiety and tension and uh, kind of uh, doomsday scenario that hung over this country for so long. It hung over uh, this country all during the Cold War period. The President Eisenhower had John Foster Dulles uh, as Secretary of State, Alan Dulles' brother. Alan Dulles ran the CIA. His brother ran the State Department under Eisenhower. Uh, and you know, John Foster Dulles famously had a doomsday scenario who's always threatening nuclear war, uh, over some, uh, you know, flashpoint in China, uh, in Berlin and so on and so forth. So, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, President Kennedy was trying to end that madness, that nuclear madness. And I think that's what got him killed. See, see, when, can I just add one thing? Can I add one thing to that? Yeah, sure. Um, See, in November of 1961, Kennedy was very upset that he had such a hard time uh, getting to what he wanted to do in Vietnam. There was a series of meetings, okay? And Bobby Kennedy was essentially uh, carrying water for JFK during those meetings. And so after this was over, he called a meeting of some of the CIA guys, Lemnitzer, uh, Maxwell Taylor was there. This was, I think, November the 27th, okay, 1961. And he made no qualms about this. He says, look, if somebody disagrees once the policy is made, it's their obligation to get out, okay, you know, once the policy has been decided. And then he said... Now, who is going to implement my Vietnam policy? And McNamara raised his hand, okay, that, that he would do it, all right? And this indicates, I believe, that he was really upset with, A, the fact he had to fight so hard 
to get uh, NSAM 111 through. And B, that they were people that he suspected were going to try and subvert his policy. Okay, this is why. And another really good thing about David's book, both of them, is that it's, and what he just said, who was Kennedy going through for this reproachment with Castro? Lisa Howard, William Atwood, and Jean Danielle. Okay, who was he going through for this reproachment with Khrushchev? Norman Cousins. Okay. You know, yes, that Jim, that's a very important point. He's using a civilian, in some cases, cutouts, uh, to have these high level negotiations with Castro and with Khrushchev instead of his own State Department people or the CIA. Uh, it was, it, this shows you that he felt that the official means, uh, of, of governing were not open to him, were not accessible to him. They've been cut off. He was using Bill Atwood, who's an old prep school friend, a diplomat, uh, to negotiate. Lisa Howard was an ABC newswoman who had interviewed Castro. Jean Daniel was a French, uh, journalist who also was going to meet with, uh, uh, Castro, did meet with Castro the day Kennedy was killed. Um, he was using Norman Cousins, who is a journalist and kind of a, a, a crusader for peace. Uh, to meet with Khrushchev in Moscow. And so Kennedy felt he had to use these uh, and people outside of his own circle, outside of his own government, often uh, to enforce his policies, to implement his policies. Well, before we uh, go further, there was an item that Jim brought up to you before we began recording about some of the guests that Alan Dulles had in his uh, local government in exile. I was fascinated by that. Uh, I believe the gentleman's name was Martinez. Yeah, pa- Paulino Sierra Martinez had been a... uh a, a, a Bautista for the Bautista dictatorship that was overthrown by Castro. Um, he'd been an enforcer, a militant, probably an assassin, someone who knew, who knew how to use weapons. I interviewed his, uh, daughter-in-law and she said that he brought weapons, uh, into his son's apartment in Chicago. He was a thug, basically. He was a violent guy. He was meeting for some reason with Dulles, with Alan Dulles at his home in Georgetown after he <laughs> Dulles was fired. So, I mean, all kinds of strange characters are showing up at Dulles's house. Um, later, he fell under some suspicion by the Secret Service as being involved in a plots against the president, against President Kennedy. So these are the violent kind of people who Dulles was meeting with, shady characters in some in in some cases. Uh, one of the things that is tossed out by people to rebut the notion that there was, not the notion, but the fact that there was a vast conspiracy behind President Kennedy's assassination, uh, and that is they, they tend to uh, twine a couple of different things. They say, on the one hand, well, uh, Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, was JFK's brother, and how come he didn't investigate the assassination? And then they also say, well, you know, if there was a conspiracy, how come the Kennedy family has never done anything about it? And Robert Kennedy's behavior with regard to the assassination is something that you cover at length, David, in the documentary. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, and Jim's right. I covered it first in, in Brothers, my book Brothers, which was the first book I wrote on the subject. That was all about really tracing Bobby Kennedy's steps as attorney general and then later as senator from New York, looking into his brother's murder and intending to reopen the case if he'd been elected president in 1968. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, as his speechwriter and aide, Ad Molinsky, told me, was a very uh, shrewd man about how power operates in America. He wasn't about to go public with his doubts about the Warren report, his doubts about President Kennedy's murder, his assassination. But he knew. No one 
as Schlesinger famously said, knew more about the dark side of American power in those years than Bobby Kennedy. He had uh, investigated the mafia as the uh, chief counsel for the Senate Rackets Committee in the 1950s. As attorney general, he went after the organized crime. He he clashed with the CIA. Uh, So Bobby Kennedy, as President Kennedy's kind of tough guy, his enforcer, really knew uh where how power operated in this country and of course joe kennedy the father was no slouch either he knew he'd been operating politically for years uh as a finance guy and a wall street guy and someone who worked in the uh, roosevelt administration so the kennedys uh i feel uh figured out pretty quickly uh i was told by one of his aides uh at the Justice Department, Bobby Kennedy figured out the Kennedy uh, JFK assassination within hours uh, of the event. Uh, he sent one of his top investigators, Walter Sheridan, to look into Jack Ruby, who'd killed Lee Harvey Oswald on camera. Uh, he found out that Jack Ruby's phone logs, the people he called were all mafia types in the days before his hit on Jack, on Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, uh, Frank Manquitz, who was an aide to, Pre- to Bobby Kennedy, told me that it read those logs of phone logs like the witness list before the Senate Rackets Committee. They were all mobsters. So, you know, Jack Ruby was carrying out, uh, you know, an errand. He was a mob errand boy, basically, by killing Lee Harvey Oswald, by silencing him. And we'll talk more about Oswald later and what the recent uh, documents have been released uh, say about him. But uh, I feel that Bobby Kennedy was a very, very smart man and put together what had actually happened uh, to his brother in Dallas within hours of that uh, event. Now, did he have the power? No. He knew that Jed Hoover had the FBI, that President Johnson, who took over, uh, were his mortal political enemies. And he had no power as attorney general to reopen the case, investigate it. It would have produced a traumatic reaction within the U.S., if if the president's brother went public with his doubts about the official case, uh, it was in President Johnson's interest, in Hoover's interest, in the CIA's interest, in all the people who continued to operate in power to put this to rest. And that's what they did. They laid the dust, as, as it was uh, later said, uh, on the body of the President Kennedy. And it was, must, let's move forward and put this behind us. Well, RFK was not the type to put behind it secretly. He continued to investigate, look into the uh, uh, murder of his brother. He intended, as I showed in my book, Brothers, I interviewed dozens and dozens of his aides, the people close to him. He was very quiet. He was very circumspect about this. He didn't want it to blow up in his face. He only wanted to do this as president of the United States when he thought he would have the power to reopen the case into his brother's uh, death. And so he played it very cagey. He was very quiet about it. Uh, he disappeared when the Warren report was, uh, unveiled, when it was released. He disappeared from the campaign trail. He was campaigning at the time for the Senate from, uh, New York. Um, he knew he'd be asked about it. He purposely ducked those questions. He was finally asked about, pushed about it by students out here in California when he was running for president in 1968. And he said in a very kind of grudging way, yes, I'll reopen the case. Uh, so that I, I believe he was walking uh, a political tightrope. He couldn't come out and, and campaign for a reopening of the case without producing kind of a uh, huge backlash in this country, without it becoming really the story that dominated the campaign for president in 1968. So he wanted to end the war in Vietnam. He wanted to end the uh, civil rights um, kind of, uh, you know, disturbances and fractures that were tearing apart the country. Those were the two issues that he ca- campaigned primarily on. He didn't want uh, the, the murder of his brother to dominate everything else. And so he played it close to his chest. But I know from my interviews with people that he fully intended to reopen the case if he had made it back to the White House in 68. 
And of course, that did not happen. Uh, one of the things that's interesting too, David, is that uh, within a week of the assassination, uh, Robert Kennedy had communicated to uh, Nikita Khrushchev through uh, Bill Walton and uh, Mr. Boshikov that he knew what had basically happened. And this was within a week of JFK's death. I'll develop that for us, if you would. Yes, that's a very important trip uh, that, again, has been lost uh, largely to uh, history uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, Bill Walton was a close friend of the president of the Kennedy family, and he was all scheduled when President Kennedy was still alive to go to Moscow on a trip, an arts ex- uh, mission. He was going to go to the ballet and meet with poets and, uh, and, and try to set up artistic exchange program with the uh, Soviet Union. And so Bobby, after the president is killed in Dallas, Bobby Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy, by the way, the first lady, come to him and say, Bill, will you go ahead with this trip? Uh, you know, stand schedule as you were planned to do and deliver this message from the two of us, from Jackie Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy to Georgi Bolshakov, who is a Russian, uh, basically spy they trust. Uh, he's, uh, he works for the GRU, uh, the, uh, you know, Soviet intelligence agency, the military intelligence. And they said, meet with Georgi Bolshakov, someone they trusted as an intermediary during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the previous year and tell him that we know you didn't do it, that you were not behind this ter- terrible murder, that we believe it was a domestic, a high level domestic political conspiracy against the uh, president and that we're going to get to the bottom of it. And, and I intend to pursue my political career and I will continue the president's policies, uh, if I become president. So that was a heavy, heavy thing to say at the height of the Cold War, to tell our basically our primary enemy, look, we know you're not behind the assassination of the president. We know it was a domestic conspiracy. That's a very heavy thing to say. Evan Thomas later chided Robert Kennedy for saying this. But I didn't think that was the right lesson to take from this incident at all. I think the right lesson to take from it is, my God, the Kennedy family knew that JFK was the victim of a domestic conspiracy, and they're so distraught about it and so alienated from their own government, they're telling uh, the the Russians uh, this, uh, you know, story. So um, I thought it was a remarkable event. Yeah, that's and, – and the thing is, that kind of um... – parallels what happened um, with the very famous peace speech, okay, that um, Norman Cousins, who we mentioned before, was kind of like the messenger boy uh, <laughs> between between the right. <laughs> Isn't that something? You can't use your State Department. How about this Saturday Review editor? Maybe I can use him, okay? <laughs> and, he's, and he's like a, like a messenger boy. Uh, saying that, um, you know, if you want to get through the nuclear proliferation treaty, you're going to have to give Khrushchev something. Okay. That he can take back to the hardliners. Okay. And so JFK goes to Sorensen and he says, you know, write me a speech about how important peace is between the Soviet Union and the United States. And he came out with a hell of a good speech. Okay, and so that's another example. See, Bobby Kennedy's communicating through Bolshakov. JFK was communicating, you know, through cousins. You know, and, 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 and by the way, another nice thing that David does in his book, okay, uh, is he shows how Bobby Kennedy by 1963, probably by the end of 62, is kind of like the roving ambassador you know, for JFK. You know, he be, he's not just the attorney general. He's the unofficial secretary of state by that time. There's another interesting thing about uh, Robert Kennedy uh, and something that has become oh, sort of a uh, doctrine in the progressive sector, and that is that he oversaw 
the plots to kill Fidel Castro that were uh, attended to or part of Operation Mongoose. And uh, in JFK Revisited, the actual authors of the uh, CIA mob plots against Castro and Robert Kennedy's and, and JFK's responses to that are covered. What would you detail that for us? Yeah, I mean, Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, met with two high-level CIA officials. And he said, look, why are you blocking my investigations into organized crime in Las Vegas? And they kind of sheepishly said, oh, God, that's because, yeah, there, uh, there are guys, you know, we've been <laughs> organized crime. Gil Castro. And he goes, what the hell? What the, what is going on? You know who I am as attorney general. I'm going after these guys, put them in jail with everything I have. And you're stopping my investigation because you're in bed with them. Uh, you you don't get in bed with gangsters. So uh, he he uh, I I talked to people who overheard him that day, and he was genuinely outraged. The CIA and the mafia were working together to kill Castro, uh, and he and they they assured him they put a stop to it. Uh, they the CIA was no longer cooperating with organized crime in any way. That was bull. Uh, they lied to him. They lied to the attorney general just the way they did to the president himself. They continue to work with the mafia to kill Castro. We know about their plots now. I detail uh, several in the book. I interviewed people who learned about them. Uh, and at one point, they gave even John Dolan, who was an emissary, a peace emissary, and Donovan, Bill Donovan, who were two peace em- emissaries to uh, Castro. The CIA, without their knowledge, gave them a poisoned skin diving suit to give to Castro as a gift that would have killed him. So they're using the CIA was so cynical. They're using JFK peace emissaries to Havana to kill Castro. That's how out of control these people were. Now, look, uh, Jim and I have talked a lot about, you know, how the president can, didn't control his own government. That's a really important thing to say. Uh, he was using emissaries who are civilians, who are friends of his here and there, uh, media people, uh, Norman Cousins, who was a Saturday Review magazine editor, uh, and others. And why? He didn't trust his own people. He didn't trust Dean Rusk at the State Department. Let's not put it all on Alan Dulles. I have a whole chapter in my book, Devil's Chessboard, about the power elite. Kennedy was at war with the power elite, the men who ran this country. The Wall Street guys, the military guys, the CIA guys, and they're all men, by the way, uh, virtually all men in those days. Um, and he was at war with more than just Alan Dulles. Al- Alan Dulles was the enforcer. He was someone who, uh, who would only operate, would only go into action when the board, so to speak, decided that something, uh, sinister had to happen. So he was, uh, uh, in, in, in really, uh, uh, he was carrying out the wishes of the parallel. Men like the Rockefellers, like Doug Dillon, who was a Wall Street guy, who was Secretary of the Treasury, uh, under Eisenhower and Kennedy, a Republican guy. So the power elite, as he or Mills called them, the famous sociologist at Columbia University, really was behind, I think, uh, it wasn't just an Alan Dulles operation. Alan Dulles, I think, organized the assassination and the cover-up because he served on the Warren Commission, and we'll talk about that. But Alan Dulles really swanned around. He went to the same clubs. He was uh, he and his brother, John Foster Dulles, were bigwigs at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. Uh, they went to the Army-Navy Club. They, they were friends with the CBS executives, with the New York Times executives. That's why the New York Times, by the way, blacklisted me. They wouldn't even touch the uh, devil's chest where they wouldn't review it. The Washington Post famously told my my publicist for the book, and HarperCollins was a big publisher, we won't touch this book with a 10-foot pole. Because <laughs> the CIA and the ta- is entwined with the uh, corporate media. 
uh, they were on a first-name basis. Alan Bells knew the publisher of the New York Times. He knew the publisher of the uh, Washington Post. He knew the CBS executives. He knew all the network people. They thanked him. Newsweek thanked him. I, have the, I saw the letter. Uh, the head of Newsweek thanked him for, for, for shaping their coverage of the Warren Report, for God's sake. He was a member of the Warren Commission, Dallas. So it was an inside job. And the corporate media, was in, when they say, oh, if there was a conspiracy, we would have outed it. It's bull. It's complete bull. Corporate media is a handmaiden of power in this country. And I, by the way, I interviewed Ben Bradley, who was the head of the Washington Post for years, and you know, played by Jason Robards in the movie All the President's Men, and was a great hero of the journalism profession. Ben told me uh, point blank. He was emeritus at the time, but he's still in office of the Washington Post. He said, you know, he was JFK's best friend in the Washington press corps. He went to the White House a lot, he and his wife. I said, Ben, why didn't you investigate this? You could have done it. You could have gone behind the House Assassinations Committee, even in the 70s, and reopened the case. He said he, he was honest with me. He said, my career, I would do it because my career would ruin me. Uh, you know, uh, uh, same with 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes, uh, you know, who's the guy who's the... Hewitt. The, Hewitt's yeah, the guy Don you talked to. I knew Don Hewitt and Brothers. I said, why don't you break this case open? You And he goes, we do. We do as a mafia. And the CIA killed Kennedy, covered that up. I said, well, why the hell didn't you tell report that story? It's, it's a big deal if 60 Minutes had reported. Well, we didn't pin it down. We never did it, you know. So I got these bullshit excuses from uh, the, the so-called heroes of the American press. They're cowards, these men, who ran CBS, who ran the Washington Post, the New York Times. They're all cowards. Uh, the uh, Alan Bellis and John Foster, uh, among the many, uh, as you put it, power elite associations, uh, borrowing from the C. Wright Mills uh, ideology, was Sullivan and Cromwell, one of the preeminent Wall Street law firms. And for people who are listening to this, and well, this won't uh, be on the radio for 2023, Sullivan and Cromwell crops up in connection with the FTX implosion, too, the cryptocurrency and Sam Bankman-Fried. So this is a name that can be seen in high-profile events throughout American history, and it is inextricably linked with the story of not only Alan Dulles, but his brother and Eisenhower Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Now, the actual inclusion of Alan Dulles into the Warren Commission is something else that you talk about in the film. Uh, I wonder if you would go into... How that happened, and and how did LBJ represent this? That is in and of itself, I think, significant. Well, let's talk about Solomon Cromwell first. That's the original power base of the Dulles brothers, the most powerful uh, law firm on Wall Street, and continues, as you say, to be a very strong factor in American uh, commercial life and corporate life. John Foster Dulles ran Sullivan and Cromwell. He was the number one uh, partner in the company. Uh, he brought his brother, his younger brother, Alan Dulles, in. And Alan Dulles was essentially the bagman for the uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. He carried out some of the more sinister uh, jobs that uh, Sullivan and Cromwell clients wanted uh, carried out. So he worked for United Fruit. In uh, Latin America, the very powerful agribusiness company that based in Boston, uh, he represented the mining companies that were so uh, big in Africa, so important in Africa, including Patrice Lumumbo's Congo. They saw him as a threat, the mining companies. They won him overthrown. So uh, the Dulles brothers portrayed him to, to Eisenhower, the president, as a threat, as a communist. He wasn't. Uh, he was uh, attempting to uh, liberate his country from uh, corporate control. 
And, uh, he was a threat to the mining companies, what is what he was, but he was not a communist. Uh, they would portray these people as communists and then overthrow them and, and in some cases kill them, execute them. Uh, so Akaba Arbenz, who was like the candidate of Guatemala, they overthrew him because he was standing up to the agribusiness companies like United Fruit that attempted to control his company, his country, that were controlling his country. Um, so again and again, uh, the Dulles brothers were enforcing the interests of of their commercial of their corporate clients they did so at Solomon Cromwell then they went to Washington as secretary of state and a CIA director they continued uh, that same strategy uh, the oil companies the mining companies the, the agribusiness companies they were all uh, former clients of the Dulles brothers and they continued to advance their interests as uh, Washington high Washington officials um LBJ was, I think, uh, lower on the food chain than these men. Um, LBJ basically came from a very humble background. Uh, he was a sinister, corrupt character. Um, you know, he was forced on the ticket for political reasons in 1960 as uh, JFK's vice presidential candidate. He did deliver Texas by hook and crook. He was a crooked guy. Uh, he delivered Texas, which was important uh, to the Democratic column in 1960. Um, but he was probably going to be offed uh, politically by the Kennedy brothers. Bobby Kennedy hated his guts. In 1964, they were looking around for other people who could deliver key states uh, in 1964. He was a subject of multiple uh, corruption cases, uh, investigations in 1963. It was coming to a head. He was in trouble politically. Uh, so I believe that he was tipped off about the assassination operation, that he was told this was going to go down. He was a physical coward. He hit the floor uh, of the limousine he was in, in Dallas that day. He later was found cowering in Air Force One in the bathroom by the Air Force aide, uh, by the general. Uh, he thought he was going to be next, maybe. Um, he thought there'd be a nuclear war uh, that would be precipitated by this. Uh, Bill uh, his uh, Bill Moyers told me this uh, in my interview with him, that he was staring at the window. He thought the nuclear missiles were going to fly that day, staring at the window of his uh, Air Force plane as it went back to Washington. Um, so I think LBJ kind of what he was a shrewd character. I think he was tipped off. He knew what had happened. He was always guilty that he'd ascended to the presidency this way over the body, literally of, of GFK. Um, and, you know, I think that was partly the reason he didn't run for reelection 1968. He thought it was Bobby Kennedy's seat uh, and uh, that he'd taken it by in a kind of uh, biblically Shakespearean like wrong way. Uh, the, uh, the there's a book that I want to recommend in, in passing uh, because one of the, the subscripts really to uh, JFK's attempts at uh, end running the CIA, actually CIA Pentagon and State Department, and the necessity of using these back channels. Uh, there's an excellent book by Burton Hirsch, uh, the paperback, excuse me, the hardcover edition of which was pulped actually by the CIA. It's called The Old Boys, subtitled The American Elite and the Origins of the CIA. And uh, it, it is a good illustration of how the kingmakers or the luminaries in the U.S. intelligence apparatus, CIA in particular, are inextricably linked with what uh, uh, C. Wright Mills termed the power elite. Uh, I don't know if the paperback edition uh, is as good as the hardcover, but that will uh, flesh out some of the things that uh, David talks about in uh, both Brothers and in The Devil's Chessboard. Uh, with regard to uh, Alan Dulles being on the uh, Warren Commission, uh one of the points that's made in the documentary 
is that Alan Dulles was the only person on the commission who didn't have a day job, so to speak. So that left him in a very advantageous position. You're right. He was very active on the commission. He was the only one who was not in office. Uh, Earl Warren had a day job as Supreme Court Chief Justice. He didn't want the job. Uh, President Johnson kind of uh, strong-armed him into the role. It was Alan Dulles who in many ways ran the commission because he, as you say, he was very active, uh, and the others were all dis- distracted by their other political functions. Alan Dulles made sure that Lee Harvey Oswald was framed for the murder. He made sure the CIA and the FBI and other government agencies were not uh, implicated in the murder. Uh, he really controlled the investigation to a large extent. He and Jerry Ford, Jerry Ford was really operating as a young congressman on behalf of the FBI. And so I think uh, the two of them, and there's a wonderful book called Breach of Trust uh, that came out uh, probably a decade ago, Jim, right? Yeah, a, a little bit more than that. A little bit more than that. That's a wonderful book about the Warren Report. If you want to have get more information about that, uh, really, I think very uh, tragic process how that report was put together. So um, the it was a cover up, pure and simple. Uh, when when Lee Harvey Oswald, who is a young probably guy who is in way over his head as his wife Marina Oswald said, wanted to play with the big boys and got burned. He shouted out to the press after his arrest in the Dallas uh police station, I'm a patsy. He was a patsy. He was a fall guy. He was someone they could pin the murder on. They knew if he lived that he would have uh, probably, you know, cleared himself. They had a very weak case against him. They had to silence him. So they sent Jack Ruby in. The mafia had done the CIA's bidding on many occasions in the past, did their dirty work for them. And Jack Ruby was carrying out an errand. Uh, he was someone uh, who was, they told, would be a hero because he was shooting the president's murder. Uh, of course, he died in prison. So, you know, um, it was, this is all starting to come out now. Uh, it's, you know, no one really who has any sense who really has studied this case, like Jim and I have, believes that, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. The forensics as the film, uh, that Oliver Stone and, uh, Jim did, the documentary really, I think, uh, sh- show convincingly, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald could not have been the lone assassin of the president, that he was shot from multiple directions. It's clear. I got, uh, two Parkland surgeons who worked at Parkland Memorial uh, Hospital who labored over the president's mortally wounded body. to sign a declaration saying this was a national security operation. The Washington Post was the only newspaper, the only paper of any kind of uh, import that uh, actually acknowledged this, uh, this statement, this public statement. Um, We called for a a reopening of the investigation into the president's murder. It was signed by two, uh, Parkland surgeons by uh, Bob Blakey, G. Robert Blakey, who was the chief counsel of the House Assassinations Committee, and many others who had really looked into this case, uh, academics, uh, forensic experts, lawyers, uh, and many others. Uh, this was, a, I think, about five years ago, four years ago. Um, so, the media continued to look the other way, uh, and but more and more, I think the American people know this was the case that really eroded trust, uh, began to erode the public's trust in authority in this country. And as a result of this uh, cover-up of President Kennedy's murder, we have all sorts of kind of uh, far-fetched conspiracy theories now. But this was power likes to operate in silence. And it's a job of the press and the job of the judiciary and the job of, of investigators, congressional investors, to bring the truth out. And it's fallen into uh, the laps of people like Jim and myself and, and dozens and dozens of others who have spent the time to investigate the crime and the cover-up. Uh, and finally, I think it, the truth will finally come out. 
Uh, it's starting to come in now. It's unraveling their official story. It's been unraveling for years. And uh, if the CIA is forced by President Biden to do the right thing, to do the thing that they're legally required to do, which is release all the documents related to the Kennedy presidency, we'll finally begin to get some sense of what happened. And I think Lee Harvey Oswald will be proven to be what he was, what he said he was, which was the past. He was a low-level intelligence agent his mother told the press at the time, uh, who was used cynically by the CIA to take the rap for this terrible crime. Uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, very quickly, uh, Jim and David, I wonder if you would tell us, uh, tell the audience, uh, where or about Brothers about Devil's Chessboard, about JFK Revisited, uh, Black Ops Radio, uh, Kennedy's and King. Why, why, why don't you have David go first? Okay, David. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Jim DiEugenio and all of his. <laughs> I think JFK Revisited is an important document. I think it, it, it really pulls together the latest thinking on the case. And I think in a very effective way, uh, you know, uh, tells us what really happened, the truth about what happened in Dallas some 60 years ago. So I think. The fact that Oliver Stone has stayed with this ever since his film, JFK in 1991, I think, first came out, uh, is hugely important. I think Jim, as a producer of this documentary that just came out uh, a few months ago, is to be commended for this. I have always said the best story will win. And the, most, and the best story is the story that tells the truth. And I think that because of Jim and people like Oliver and because of, frankly, the work I've done, many, many others uh, who Jim and I could name here, but I think uh, the truth will finally out. So I encourage people to see the film and also to read the, my two books, which we've talked about today. Okay, uh, Jim, uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, remember, Jim has uh, offered a number of books, including Destiny to Trade, the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews we did some years ago. I uh, wrote the screenplay for one of the two- and four-hour versions of JFK Revisited, edited the book, and uh, is our guest here. And again, uh, Brothers, uh, Devil's Chessboard, and uh, uh, the commentary by David Talbot in the documentary. This concludes for the record program number 1281, interview number 18 with Jim Eugenio and David Talbot. This is being recorded on December 28th of the year 2022. For David Talbot and Jim Eugenio, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening. <laughs>